very pleased to welcome Matt Tepper from Google, who I met at uh, David Murray's leadership group at the end of 2015 at uh, the headquarters of Duarte Design or Duarte Inc. Matt's the head of editorial at Google. He's the leader and founder of a group called Google Inc. Uh, that team keeps um, the uh, communications from Google. Uh, they're responsible for that and uh, defining the voice of Google in major speeches, executive presentations, op-eds, blog posts, social media, press, internal and other editorial work. And Matt is currently Eric Schmidt, who's the, one of the, uh, I think he was brought in for adult supervision by the young founders of Google many years ago. And I believe he's the chairman of Alphabet, the Google parent company now. He came, Matt came to Google in 2012 from the White House, where he served as speechwriter to Vice President Joe Biden. And um, he's got a degree in journalism from the University of Texas and a law degree from Wisconsin. And he lives in Palo Alto. So, Matt, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to the Silicon Valley Speechwriters Roundtable. Thank you. Thanks for chatting again, Ian. Thanks for making the time. Yeah. So let me kick this off. I mean, how did you get into speechwriting? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that... That seemed to be like it, it's not that crazy of a background for some speechwriters that I've met. I, I I was always into writing from the time I was in grade school. That was my favorite thing. I was I was not going to be a mathematician, basically, mm-hmm. or a physicist. Um, and so I really enjoyed writing. I enjoyed English. I enjoyed reading. Got to school, got the journalism degree, and, and still wanted to do writing. I I also I think kind of wanted to I didn't know how to make that work in the real world I wanted to put off going into the real world a little bit I come from a family of attorneys and my dad's big big um, push to me was that a lot of grief would never hurt me in the end which I mean for three years it hurt but after <laughs> that he's probably right um, and then when I moved out to DC I started working at a, at a nonprofit that did work in I was doing writing and editing work at a nonprofit that worked in the legal world. It, it was kind of the, one of the big, big fighters against. Um, this was when W was in office, and it was we were kind of one of the, the big organizations fighting against his most conservative judicial nominees. So I ended up writing and editing a lot of stuff related to the law specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was doing that, I kind of like there, there was a speechwriter, a contracted speechwriter for the CEO of the organization, and I kind of like was nipping at his heels saying, let me try this, let me try this, let me try this, I'm interested in it, see if I can do it. Um, throughout my entire writing career, people had always said to me, you write like you speak. And so it kind of like stuck with me for a little bit. And uh, and then the rest, like I said, I wrote a couple of speeches, just like really small kind of ceremonial things, and then kind of went on from there, basically. And was your first job as a, a sort of proper job where your title was speechwriter, was that for the vice president? No, no, no. I had been, no, that was about, so I'd say that was how many years later? Six or seven years later. I, I started writing, um, so I started writing there. I, I went on to work briefly in the creative department of a political consulting firm where I did some work for um, executives at our client groups, um, client companies and, and some actual politicians, and then went on full-time to write for the head of another nonprofit. Uh, and from there, I was doing some stuff. I did a little bit of, like, circuit third-party validator stuff on the, on the carry campaign and kind of went from there. So I was doing stuff in the nonprofit world for a paycheck, however meager it was, and mm-hmm. then started started writing some political stuff on the side 
and kind of built up from there and then did some stuff on the on the on on the side during the, the run up to the two thousand eight election and that's when I kind of moved into the White House after that. Okay. Okay. So I mean, I've, I've, I know from the Reagan conference uh, where we had John Favreau present. Um, were you? You obviously know Favreau, but were you at that conference by any chance? Did you have you heard his story about how Obama kind of pucked him out of obscurity when he was a candidate and he stuck with him through the first term and a half? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I, Fav and I, we're, yeah, we go, we're friends. We yeah. know each other. Um, seen each other recently a few times. He, yeah, I wasn't at that conference. I do know his story. It's a good story. So uh, he's he's talented and he's good with uh, the president and him have a pretty special relationship. So. That's what I was wondering about. I mean, is what can you say anything? Obviously, the vice president's still in office, and uh, but can you say anything about how it was like? To work at that level, to be in the, um, it, 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 there's a photograph of you I found online where you're sitting with notes on your knee and Biden's on his, at his desk behind you. I mean, Favreau tells all kinds of stories about how Obama would reassure him that the speech will, you know, come through the night kind of thing. Any, any first impressions that you had of Joe Biden and how they evolved over the time you worked with him? Yeah, I mean, it's so it's 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 a little. It, it was it was kind of it's kind of funny because you're writing speeches for a man who is famous for being unscriptable in a way, right? And going off script, um, and so it made for I don't know some some heartache, some humor. Mm-hmm. What what it also did was that it, the communications people around him were very, I guess, nervous is one word. Uh, <laughs> a lot of times, and I had to be everywhere with him. So I, I traveled around the world with him. Basically, I lived on Air Force Two for three plus years, which has it sounds more glamorous than it actually is. But it was it was a pre- it was very interesting to be like have that front row seat and be in his kind of hip pocket in a way for those for those years. And I, I just I learned a lot about um, a like what what kind of energy it takes to actually be in front at that level, like to constantly be on as a politician in front of crowds all day long without knowing where you are or who you're talking to and and to still kind of like try to stay on message and stay on script. It's, it's a pretty impressive thing to watch one man do. It's something that I know I could never do. Um, I think from a communications perspective, I mean, it, we, we grew together in that he, like, you obviously start to... One of, one of our like challenges, we showed up, we were, we, I was there at the beginning of the administration, so everyone was there. I mean, there were a few people on our team who had worked in the Clinton White House, but for the most part, we were there for the first time. This isn't your average job where you show up and people are there to like show you where the bathrooms are and to like give you some kind of formal orientation. It's like you show up and everyone else is gone, so now it's yours. And it's, it's a difficult, it's a, it's a difficult transition. It's kind of a fun transition because you can shape that you can shape your world the way you want to or in ways that ha- hasn't happened before. So we were all kind of learning, including him. He had never been, a, he'd never been vice president, obviously. So we were all kind of learning together how to do this stuff. And it, it made for a lot of time together, a lot of interesting experiences, some funny, some sad, some, I don't know. It was, it was, it was an amazing experience for three plus years. Three plus years was more than enough of that experience, but yeah. I'm happy to have moved on since. 
Yeah, well, while we're in the political arena, because I, I, I obviously would like to get onto Google and work in the corporate world, but um, so any comments? You talked about Biden going off message. Uh, there's politicians currently running for that office who probably make Biden seem like he's reading from a script. But any comments on the current level of discourse in the presidential race? Um, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's tough for me to say. Like, I, I, so there's, there's two things. Like, I, I've, I'm watching it so much more as just a casual observer than I ever have. And it's been, I guess it's, like, I, I, what I'm assuming is it's never really this much of a circus. And um, it does seem like I'm watching, at least on the right, a circus where the, the level of discourse isn't even, it's not even like a, it's not the issue, right? Like the the, the discourse, it's the, the discourse. It takes place at a level that like doesn't even that we were never exi- like a plane, a level we never existed on when we were actually trying to govern. You know, so it's like completely different. And the stuff, particularly that goes on on social media, which also has obviously grown in importance, seems way beyond anything that we would have done. Like any kind of conversation we would have had. Um, and I don't, I'm not want to call out any specific candidates or anything, but um, for the most part on the right, it just seems like I'm not watching the same kind of political communication that I've grown accustomed to watching forever. On the left, I mean, the discourse, it, it, it seems like as race heated up, maybe it, it got a little less issues-based, but it's still pretty, for a presidential campaign, pretty fundamentally issues-based. And for and, and I think that's kind of impressive. I mean, it makes sense for two people who don't necessarily differ all that much. I mean, they do on certain points, but for the most part, the conversation and, and two experienced politicians um, who probably have at least a grudging respect for each other. Um, I think that shows a little bit more in the level of discourse. Okay. All right. Well, that's a. Uh... As good an answer as I'm sure you're able to give at the moment, given that uh, everything's in play. Um, so you came to Google in 2012 di- directly from the White House. You kind of packed your bags in D.C. and unpacked them in Palo Alto. Was that how it worked? Uh, yes. I mean, it, it was. there was a, a, a four-year-old daughter, a pregnant wife, and a really crazy bat and ham that had to come with me so it wasn't quite as easy as me just flying across the country and okay. showing up but um yeah we we moved it was april 2012 so, so came out here and i think what my it was part of it was i mentioned my pregnant wife so that was like actually a huge deal so we uh, it was a presidential re-election campaign was about to kick into high gear and i would have had to basically stay like commit right around that time to staying out through the campaign or leave. And so I think the travel that I'd already done was already kind of wearing on me. Um, most people don't stay three plus years. I was kind of a sucker. I was a glutton for punishment in some ways. Um, and uh, I think with the, this, the, the second child, for all the joy she's given us, she also gave us the impetus to move and try something new. Mm-hmm. And I think that, so that's been great. So we, what we did was, yeah, we, we moved across the country. I, I mean, Google is very, very different from the White House, and Washington, D.C. is very, very different from the Bay Area. And I think it is, I would, for anyone who's ever thinking of doing something like that, like, I, I think when you wake up for a while and every day is completely unfamiliar to you, what you're doing, where you are, it's a, I think it's a valuable thing to go through if you can manage it. You mean your time on Air Force Two, that was when you woke up every day and unfamiliar? 
know, well, no, no, the, uh, the, I'm just saying. When, I mean, that's true too. But when I'm when I move when basically we moved from DC to California, and I left politics, uh-huh. left Washington to move into tech and into California. So basically, everything. I would wake up every day, and my day would look completely different than it had for a very long time. And I think for like the first, and it still looks pretty different. And and, and just the, the degree, just living in a completely different world almost was a valuable thing for me to have experienced here. Yeah. So, I mean, so did you did you take your speech writing skills? Uh, were they employed immediately by people like Eric Schmidt? Or it seems like you've got quite a the Google Inc. organization uh, seems to have quite a large remit with everything from blogs to social media, but. Did, did you broaden your scope then from just presumably writing a speech a day for a vice president to a, a broader scope at Google? Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, I, yeah, that's right. So I'll explain to you kind of like what, what my job was, what my role was, um, and how it's evolved. Um, so I came out here, and I kind of – I didn't want a, a, just a full-time speech writing job anymore. I, I've been writing – Speech after speech after speech for three years, like it, it had been like I, I started to like lose the love for it in a way, um, as it it was it became kind of assembly line work for a lot of the time. And I, so I came out here. One of my main one of my main tasks was to kind of reinvigorate the internal news site they have at Google at at, at intern at, at Google like internal help the big team and like it was it's valued very highly for by. Larry and Sergey, it's, it's just like an important part of how they do communications. It's communicating with now 60,000 people that work at the company. And one of the ways they do that is through a news site, which is it's basically run in a way, or I ran it like, like an actual news site where there were kind of correspondents covering different things, and you would try to write good stories that the rest of Google would be interested in. Um, and as I was doing that, I was also asked to both kind of start to there was no formalized speech writing operation at Google to kind of lead that a little bit, but then also to be Eric Schmidt's full-time speechwriter. He was basically the one who was out there speaking the most. So I, I, I and then I, as the year, as that went on, I kind of realized there was a pretty giant hole for editorial leadership. There was no, there was no editorial team. So you would read that I was the founder of Google Inc. That's Google Inc. with a K, by the way. Um, and we, so I, I kind of joined forces with the woman who did all the editing of our blogs and did our social. And since then, we've built up to a team of about eight people, an editorial team that covers, like you said, all of that stuff. So there's, it, it's basically broken down into two things. One half would be the exec comms and speech writing stuff. And I still do that, and I still work with a couple other people to do that. I do it for Eric. I do it for um, I like to send our CEO, our newish CEO, um, gave his speech in Paris today or yesterday, whatever time it is there, but um, today basically. And I, so I, I work with him. I work with Ruth Porat, who's our CFO. Um, and so I, I do a lot of the speech writing for executives who aren't engineers, basically. I mean, some areas, but for the most part, and so is Eric, but the, the leadership who's not really deep into the product stuff. And then there's some people on my team who write speeches for other executives. Um, I'm hiring one now, if anyone's interested. Um, and then on the other side, we've got the blogs and social and, and still the internal news site. So, so our official Google blog, which is where we share news about Google, 
Um, and we're actually kind of we're in the midst of revamping that website. And then if you basically if you follow Google on Twitter, you're following my team, or okay. on Instagram or Facebook or that stuff. So it's it's the the way we tie it all together is to say that we, at least from a communications perspective, own the voice of the company, that's and that's the literal voice of executives or the voice on on social or on other online platforms. That's great. Yeah, and, and you mentioned in passing, and I actually had a couple of people uh, inquire because I spotted that Google Inc. job posting. And even on your LinkedIn page, I see you've got a featured uh, link to the hiring of a communications manager and speechwriter, Google in Mountain View, California. uh, So there might be people who are candidates on the line. I'm sure we've got over 20 people listening. Anything you want to say? If somebody's interested, I guess they send their resume in. But uh, and any particular aspect? I mean, the job description looks pretty thorough, and it's very clear that people should review that. Yeah, I mean, so what I'll, what I'll say, and, and like, if if someone is interested in it and you're on this call, feel free to email me directly. Like, you should apply through the main site because everything has to go through there anyway. But you should email me then directly and tell me when you do. Uh, and I'm just Tepper at Google.com. And as far as what the the position is it, it, it's speech writing and it's it's it, the speech writing will probably land more along the lines of policy speech writing like a lot of the stuff we have, we have executives out where we have policy fights largely in Europe doing um, doing a lot of speaking and so that's kind of a big chunk of it but there's also room for more product tech product based stuff and then there's a lot of there's there's a lot of like editing and writing that isn't speech writing, so it's, it's kind of like a general staff writer position as well. Um, so it's a good it's a good chance for people to to kind of like hone some speech writing skills while also doing a broader range of writing and more creative thinking um, for things that could happen on other platforms besides speeches. So it's, it's a, I mean, I think it's a cool job, right? Like, I hope it's a cool job. So yeah. definitely get in touch if you're interested. That's great. And then obviously people would need to locate, be located or relocate to to the Silicon Valley area, right? You've got to be in the office. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, the, yeah, the, the, the position is definitely out here. The, the one flexibility we do have is that we you can work in either our San Francisco – within the communications team, you can work either in the San Francisco office or Mountain View campus. I work in Mountain View because I live close to Mountain View, but my, yeah. the majority of my team works in San Francisco because they live there. So yeah. there is at least that kind of flexibility, but but be, nothing beyond the Bay Area. Or oh, they can catch the fancy white buses that go up and down 101 every day to take people down to the campus from San Francisco, right? <laughs> yes, they can. Yes, good. They put the Wi-Fi, but then they, they'd also be sitting in traffic for two hours, which is why now we've made it possible for people to live in San Francisco and work in San Francisco so they can get cool. suck your soul five days a week. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, great. Well, so this is very interesting. I mean, my own experience is very much... Uh, in the corporate world, not, I've never been in the world of politics, but when I go to, I've been to half a dozen Reagan conferences and I meet people who've worked in the White House and are in different uh, organizations in D.C., it seems like that's the area of the country where you can be a pure speechwriter because those politicians speak dozens of times a week. In the corporate world, I think what your experience is, is certainly been mine, that you, you've got to be a little bit more of a jack-of-all-trades, right? You, you've got to have other writing skills and editorial and, and broader. Is that broadly true of what you've seen? Yeah. I mean, I, I think 
I mean, it's definitely true, and it's also like I don't, I don't, I don't think of it as like a have to. It's like a want to or a should. You know, like it's a good place to do all kinds of different writing. Like I mean, I like I said, like I was just kind of like it became assembly line work to me at some point, and like I just really wanted to break out of it. And like I could have kept writing speeches for different executives. I mean, for different politicians, or even like there were a few CEOs when I was leaving that I that I was talking to, but all they really wanted was a speechwriter. And it's just it's. I, that is still like my favorite type of writing and I love doing it but it wasn't everything I wanted to do and I, or at least I didn't know and I wanted to try some other thing and so it's been um, it's been like pretty enlightening to learn these different skills and see how they also help your speech writing and then the difference basically I mean the Silicon here in Silicon Valley yeah you, you've got politicians and people value speech writers there a lot because they realize that like this, the message and the script are are important and that I mean, most of us who, there are more people who believe communications is the single most important thing in politics than believe that communications is the single most important thing in business or in tech, right? So, like, communications wins elections. Here at Google, communications helps, but, like, product is really what ends up winning, right? You, like, you build great products, like, that's how you, communication supports that, but for the most part, like, it's not, it's not number one. So the executives aren't, there, there isn't as much value placed on direct speech writing with executives mm-hmm. here as there are politicians. You've also got the Silicon Valley thing, which, I mean, that's pretty specific to Silicon Valley, less so at corporate places in New York or, or major companies elsewhere, where there's a, there is a, um, I mean, authenticity is the buzzword, right? Like, everybody wants to seem authentic, and so they don't want to seem scripted at all. They don't necessarily think that's a good idea. Like they, that there's a lot of just kind of like I'm an engineer. This is how I talk. This is how I think. It doesn't need the polish that someone in, who's in politics would need. So it's a matter of kind of convincing those people of the value of that. Now Eric, particularly, is someone who understands that and understood, and is about as polished a tech CEO as, as you will find. So um, well, I'd, I'd say that's the kind of difference, the main difference. Well, talking about Eric, and specifically, I know as as a he's a global leader, right? I mean, you've got Bill Gates, you've got Eric Schmidt, you've got I don't know if Mark Zuckerberg or Larry Ellison are really in the same league as far as communications. They're they're billionaires many times over for other reasons. But you did mention in the verbiage I put on our meetup group that you learned that you're working for an exec, who I presume you mean Eric Schmidt, who doesn't just want to be a thought leader, but whose entire corporate brand depends on it. What do you understand by a speaker or an executive being a thought leader, and how does thought leadership kind of grow? Um, well, I mean, I'll just quickly caveat that I didn't write that. I think that was that was from my intro with, uh-huh. with David. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. Um, but... Um, so I have, there's like a famous thing we have here that like all these executives who want to be thought leaders and that they just say, you know, that's what they want. They want to be thought leaders, but in order to be a thought leader, you need a thought, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it, that's like something that a lot of people haven't made that leap yet. They think like we can just write something in the New York Times, put their name on it and like as an op-ed and all of a sudden they become a thought leader, but really you need some original thinking. I mean, that sounds obvious, but not everyone views it that way. And the, the term thought leader is kind of, lost a lot of meaning for me. Um, now, with Eric particularly, like, I mean, I think he probably would qualify for whatever you would consider to be a thought leader, and that he has led a major company 
that covers a lot of ground in the world and let it let it very successfully and then has views on more than just what the company is selling. He has views on the, the policy environment, a lot of views on the policy environment, around it on kind of trends. He's good at looking forward at what how he believes our entire industry is shifting. I mean, he so he's very good at looking, be, like he was great at obviously leading a company through a very, a time of very big growth, and but also good at kind of like having a big picture of where that company stood and how technology specifically was affecting the world because obviously like technology and its effect on society is probably the biggest change that we've undergrown, undergone of, of around the globe in the last 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. So he he is kind of about as adept at communicating his thoughts on that as anyone I know. You know, I've worked for companies like HP and Cisco where there are predominantly engineers who have to stand up and speak. And have you got any comments or advice for people who deal with what I call the subject matter experts who know one thing very deeply and maybe have trouble um conveying what that means to the rest of the world in understandable terms does that is that is that a challenge your people face yeah i mean i think so that's that's a challenge i think we all say and we face it in politics with with policy experts i face it all the time dealing with economic policy and foreign policy that these people like know and at the white house particularly they are the world foremost experts on this stuff but they're not the best communicators about it and it's kind of the same thing here where people are developing a product and they can tell you every little in and out and every tech feature and whatever, but it doesn't, it doesn't resonate. So, I mean, the, the, the things that will, that will work, at least, okay, so from my perspective when I'm writing, and I think I said this when, when we met before, Ian, is, is that like, I like, I like to say that I know a little, I know a lot, I, I know a little about a lot and rely on people who know a lot about a little. So it, at some point, like, my ability to kind of, like, dip in and out of some stuff related to the work they're doing, but also everything else going on in the world, whether that's popular culture, current events, or just other things going on kind of maybe at, at Google itself. Like, the, my ability to have a bigger picture with maybe a much shallower picture um, helps kind of bring out some of some of their bring them out of their silo, I guess is the best word for it, a little bit, as, as those conversations happen. The other thing is, I mean, like, you hear storytelling is a big buzzword now, but everybody can tell a story. Like, we have evolved for millions and millions of years to tell stories, to hear stories, and they're still kind of the most valuable, most powerful way to communicate. And the, if you can elicit stories and storytelling from that person who's in his own bubble, like usually that's a good way to break them out in a way and make them talk in a way that most people can understand. So I'm just, I've, I've sat with people and been like, so tell me how this happened. Tell me the story. Give me the backstory. Tell, tell me this. Like, tell me how you got started here. And it, it all kind of helps you shape the communications around which they're trying to sell their own stuff, whatever it might be. So I would say that's kind of the number one tool to use. Do you, do you ever get the reaction when you do that? I and mean, I think that's a great technique. Do you ever get the reaction from the super serious engineers and so on that you're trivializing it and that's I can't possibly go up and tell a story because, you know, I'm just here to relay the facts or something? No, I mean, I think so. At, at least at the level of the executives that I work with, like they, they understand 
the value of storytelling. I think the, the resistance I get, though, is a lot of them are not, if they haven't done it before, they're not comfortable at least telling personal stories, right? So they, it's a matter of breaking them. It's not understanding the value of the story itself. It's actually getting them comfortable talking about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't have the magic trick to do that besides, like, you... Sundar Pichai, who's our new CEO, is one of them. Who's, I mean, it's his first time as a CEO of a major company. Um, he, he's, he's pretty reluctant to talk, tell a lot of personal stories. But so you, we've started to kind of sprinkle them in here and there. And over the last few months, like that, we've built them up to maybe he'll tell two stories in, in a speech or in, in whatever kind of communication he's doing. And hopefully, we'll get to a point where he's super comfortable with speech writing. I mean, sorry, with, with, with speaking. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's kind of one and the same there in his case. So, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's that's where the resistance comes in, but it's not, I, I haven't gotten the trivial, I'd be interested if other people have tried that and gotten people saying that's, that trivializes my grand work that I'm working on, but um, at that point, then they need more than just communication help, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, in a minute, we'll open it up because I, I, I think, as I say, there's a good number of people on the line. I'm sure there's burning questions. So if everybody can just hold on for one or two more minutes. I just wanted to bring it down to maybe, you know, your advice, given your extensive experience in two major roles in politics and in corporate world. If you had to give a piece of a, one piece of advice you'd share with someone who wants to become a better speechwriter, become more effective, is there one or two things you'd you share? Yeah, I mean, so there, there's some like pretty simple and obvious things that like I always, whenever people ask me this, that I think like, um, and I've touched on, I think, almost all of them. One is write other stuff besides speeches. Like do, do what you can. I mean, if you're hired to be a speechwriter, I mean, wherever you're working, everyone on this call clearly can write. You're, 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 right. you're being paid to write, which puts you in a very, and, and probably you enjoy writing which puts you in like a very, very small minority of wherever you are most likely. And so everybody is always looking for writing help. And because people generally, even communications people are scared to death of writing. So the more you can put yourself out there and say, yeah, I'm a speechwriter, but I also want to help with this. I want to help with this. I want to try social media. I want to, I want to experiment with voice, with the voice of whoever it is you're working with, with corporate voice, with all of that stuff. Like it, it's just super valuable to get as much experience as you can working in different platforms, especially as, um, like, media itself and communications moves way in the direction of kind of digital platforms and social and, and new ways of communicating. The more you can modernize your thinking on that and familiarize yourself with those things and the way the language that goes on on those platforms, like, it's just the better writer you are. I'll also say just, like, I, I read a ton, and I read a ton about a lot of things that have nothing to do with my job, um, and it helps you understand voice and structure and storytelling. Um, so just read, 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 even more than you write, 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 write. Um, and I would, like, this is as a simple tip that I give people who are trying to write speeches, and it's largely for inexperienced speechwriters, who, or not even speechwriters, for people who are working for kind of lower-level execs here, like PR people that I work with, who they ask, like, you know, how do I know that this is good? I mean, and this is, like, an obvious thing that I still feel like most people don't do, but if you're writing passages of the speech, like, you should read them out loud. And 
it's a, it's like a weird kind of awkward thing to do, and maybe most of you guys do it. I don't know. Like once I started doing that, you, you can really pick out the things that work and don't, and it just makes things easier, basically. Um, and then you won't be in the position where you're rehearsing with an exec or something, and all of a sudden you realize, like, oh, my God, what? It, that looks great on the, on the page, but it doesn't really sound great here. I mean, and I... I encourage people to read things out loud even when they're not speeches, like when they're working on blog posts, when they're when they're working on the other things that we deal with, because it is a good way to determine whether or not you're kind of speaking English in a way. And with speech writing it's even more important because literally it is the way people speak. So I, I think those are those are like the they're all kind of seemingly obvious, but I feel like not enough people do them. That actually prompts one follow-up question for you, and then I'll turn, I promise I'll turn it over to the people on the call. <clears throat> I mean, you often hear speechwriters are challenged to write in the voice of the person speaking. Has that been difficult for you with the different personalities you've had to write for, or is it something that you don't find as a challenge? No, I mean, it's, it's obviously a challenge, especially as you first get, get started working with someone. But I, I think of it as, as kind of fun, you know. It's, it's a little bit of ventriloquism. Um, it's like learning the way people, like literally the ways they speak, the, the, the words they use, and then kind of the setting, it's like building their, I mean, it's kind of an awful term, but building their personal brand through the way they speak is part of what you do too. So I've totally enjoyed doing it. Um, I, I think like there are, there are speechwriters who, I also like, I have, I don't, <laughs> I don't try to force my ideas down people's throats, right? So, like, I'm here to shape their voice and to shape their words. I, so it makes, like, I don't get hung up on – I get hung up on substance, obviously, when I have to. But on, if, if – if, it, it's more important to me that they sound good and they sound natural and they sound authentic than, like, the ideas that they're espousing are the ideas that, like, I want them to espouse. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. I mean, I think any of us who've watched The West Wing can see how – the speechwriters there probably unrealistically shape policy, you know, before dinner and so on. And I'm sure you, you brought a. The, the reality was much different than that. And oh yeah, I mean, so the, the messaging was, you know, you, you you had some input, but for the most part, the messaging was brought to you in raw form, and then it was your job to kind of humanize it and make it digestible for the the public. But the the you're you're not shaping policy. The policies have already pretty much been shaped, particularly within that yeah. level of politics. So, yeah. and, and I enjoy that. I'm, I don't consider myself a policy expert at all. Um, and anyone who's worked with me wouldn't consider me a policy expert at all. And I, I think that serves me well. And it's the same thing here where I do I actually do a lot of work on policy issues because Google's involved in a lot of policy issues. But for the most part, I'm not. And I think we talked about this a bunch in the conference where I spoke last year. It's like, I, I don't consider myself, I worked in politics, I worked in tech, I'm not of politics, I'm not of tech. I don't, so my kind of outsider ignorance serves me well in determining whether something, like if something doesn't make sense to me, then the odds are it's not making sense to the people we're talking to. And I think I've kind of maintained that ignorance throughout my job, and it, it's been like an asset for me as I've moved along. Okay, we've got 23 people on the line. So given that, what I'm going to ask is, if you press star six, unmute yourself, go ahead and ask Matt, uh, you know, question, make a comment. But if there's a traffic jam, if there's two or three people and I hear a name first, if I can choose that person, other people go back on mute um, with star six and then we'll get 
hopefully through everybody who wants to. So fingers at the ready, whoever has any comments, questions, or uh, has anything they'd like to discuss with Matt, star six and, and say hello. Hi, hey, Matt. Uh, Pete, go ahead. Okay, great. Matt, very, very interesting. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, I have a question related to thought leadership. So, obviously, Eric Schmidt and other Google executives can speak anywhere they want. They can get any invitation. But I'm wondering if you can share any insights into how you decide where they should speak. Is it mostly reactive to the opportunities that the invitations that come across their desk and you weigh in on them? Is it mostly proactive, seeking out or creating opportunities? Um, can you give us any sense of how you approach that? Sure. Um, before I do that, though, when you guys chime in, can you just tell me where you are, like what what you do now, and where where you are sure. geographically? Sure. I'm in Atlanta. I previously worked in the White House in the Clinton administration, and uh, was a speechwriter for a U.S. senator, for the CEO of Coca Cola, and now I have my own um, speechwriting firm. Okay. Okay. Which CEO of Coca Cola? Uh, the prior one, Mr. Neville Isdell. Right, okay. So that was one of the, I was actually talking to Coca-Cola at one point when I was leaving the White House before I came to Google. Because um, one of the jobs I mentioned is something I didn't want to do, which was speech writing just for a CEO and doing nothing but speech writing. But, great. Um, Thank you so you're, anytime you're in Atlanta. Okay, great. Um, uh, the, oh yeah, so the, the invite, so yeah, basically, I mean, particularly with these last two, people I've supported you, if, if you're coming to Vice President, you're coming, Eric, like the invitations are constant, like it's, it's, there's not a lot of proactive, right? There's just not a lot of room for proactive. It is very reactive. It is, it is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of invites that come in. And like if he wanted to speak more than once every day of his life, he could basically, right? Um, so as a way, I mean, if you want like the nuts and bolts of the structure, he's got three admins. They get invites. They forwarded it to a group, an email that includes me and um, a couple people who serve on a PR team who do more more of the kind of strategic thinking around what his opportunities are, and we then make recommendations based on the use of his time, based on what Google is strategically prioritizing at that point, mm-hmm. and then he generally listens to our recommendations, but then there are times where it's like, well, actually, I don't want to do this thing, or I owe this person a personal favor, um, and so I'm going to do this one here. So for the most part, it is there. I think we've tried in the past to come up with like a few proactive things we want them to do, but the schedule just gets so hectic that it, it becomes almost, I'd say, 99% reactive to invitations. Very good. Thank you. I'll go back on you. Sure. Thanks, Pete. Um, Next in line, don't be shy. We've got plenty of time, over half an hour left. So um, if you have anything you'd like to discuss. This is Jerry Weinstein, may I speak, Ian? Go ahead, Jerry, and give us a bit of background, who you are. Uh, Hi there. Uh, Well, I'm based in New York City, and I've written for folks like Arthur Solberger, and currently I'm writing for uh, Wendell Potter. Uh, So I'm sort of a one-man band and do lots of other things. my question is about the stock speech versus creating new content and what is the balance because I've definitely worked with people who really like to fall back on something until it's pointed out repeatedly that it's grown stale. 
Yeah, I mean, I think so. A stump speech is a very valuable thing, particularly in politics. And um, I think we would go through that cycle a lot where we would develop some core messaging, um, try to pound it home, and then eventually it would start to, at least we, we'd like to think that we realized its staleness before other people did, before it became known as stale. But it's like a pretty tricky balance. The one thing I'll say is like, so some speeches are really valuable, right? Like they're, they're it's not, but they're valuable to us because it's not like completely rethinking everything every day of your life. But it's also like messages have to be pounded home. And the best way to do that is to repeat them. So if you have a core stump that someone is comfortable with, and there are definitely ways to kind of, in a way, trick audiences into thinking they're hearing something new, and so you just kind of surround it. You surround that cake with different icing, and it tends to work out pretty well, I think. I think it works in that you're, whoever you're writing for is comfortable with whatever the material is, um, and that they're getting better at it as time goes on. Um, and there's still an, if, there's, if you can still kind of mix in enough fresh content, then you're doing something right. I think once they, once the person actually delivering it starts to kind of feel like it's tired, and you can tell the energy flags when they get to certain parts, then I think that's probably a time to to rethink it. But for the most part, like it's all kind of evolutionary, right? Like you've got you've got a stump speech. It's going to change a little bit from event to event, not even to audience. It's also going to evolve along the way. So the second it's stale, it's still, it's not, it's not what you originally came up with a few weeks ago, a few months ago anyway, and, it, and you're not going to have to completely rewrite the whole thing the next time. So it's just kind of, it's, a, it's kind of a gradual evolution, and at points you might have to, like, rip up a little bit more than you normally do, but for the most part, if you treat it like that, I think you're in good shape. Thanks, man. Yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Uh, star six, if you have a question or a comment or like anything clarified. Hi, Ian and Matt. This is Jennifer Nelson. Can you hear me? Yeah. Go ahead, Jennifer. Yeah. Um, so there are two of us here. Actually, we're with McKesson Corporation, which is probably the biggest company, healthcare company you've never heard of. Um, and David Bone um, is responsible for our news team and enterprise communication, and I support our CEO's communications, speech writing, and all internal and external communications about leadership. Um, and our joint question for you is, um, in, in the write-up that Ian sent out, it says that um, your team is responsible for defining the voice of Google, and I, I totally agree with your commentary around understanding your executive's voice and making sure the communication you are putting together really reflects their personality and their voice, but I wonder if you could just say a few words about the voice of the enterprise and, and how you, you and your team think about that and execute on that. Yes, I mean I, I could say a lot of words about that. I won't I won't bore you completely, but I mean the voice, the Google voice is really what I think about more than anything else, right? Like that is my job in its many forms. And so the way I like I am fortunate, right? Like so the way the way I approach voice is this: like we, um, Google. Google has a reputation for being kind of a friendly, interesting, quirky, conversational, a little bit informal, not-so-corporate company, right? So I've got that kind of capital to work with. There are a lot of companies who don't. And I mean, and, that, that's, and, and maybe they don't want that kind of 
style. But that, I mean, that's the style that Google has, and it's the style I feel like I am best at. Kind of like Google is someone you trust, but it's also your kind of cool, interesting, curious friend that you get to hear from once in a while. Um, and so for every piece of communications that we put out that is loaded with tech jargon, like it chips away at that, or business jargon, it chips away at that capital that we have out there in the world. And so my goal is to make sure that we are living up to the way people, uh, that our voice sounds like what people expect it to sound like. Um, and it doesn't sound like a corporation. And, and it sounds very, very human. I mean, like, however long ago, someone decided that corporations were going to speak one way and people were going to speak another way, and it just doesn't make sense to me. So if you look at our, um, basically, if you, if you go to our Twitter account, it's just at Google is our Twitter feed, and we have 14 million followers. And you want to talk to those people the way that they would be spoken to anywhere else they were on, on Twitter, right? And so you can look at you can look at the way we handle voice, and you can see it's very human. All right, I hope you can see it's very human, and it's not very corporate. And it, it seems like you are someone's human, that we are someone's human friend in a way. Or that's at least the voice that we're going for, and we're aiming for a broad range of consumers. And, I mean, it's a, it's a little different. I mean, Google, obviously, like, it, it's... We do a lot, and it touches billions and billions of people around the world, and there are that many people who, in a way, are, whether they realize it or not, are interested or participating in what we're doing. Um, so there's just a, a lot of a lot of people to talk to to try to tap into the conversation. Um, and to do that, I think it's just a matter of speaking human. And so check out our Twitter account, check out our Instagram feed, look at the way our executives talk at conferences that you see, and like hopefully it'll all sound very, very human. I think number one is, is the humanization of it. And that helps that answer. I mean, I, I, there's just like a lot of voice stuff I can talk about. But yeah, go ahead, no, sorry. That would be a great another step. Just quick follow-up on that. As you, you know, I think that easier with a younger organization as, as Google ages and gets larger and there are more lawyers how how do you interact with that? Are the lawyers trying to get in your way or in your business, or are you pretty autonomous? Um, well, both. There, there, so there are, um, at least in the social media world and a kind of blog world, we're, we're, as a team, as an editorial team, we're actually very autonomous. There are certain things when policy or legal get involved, well, yeah, we, you know, we have to listen to them, but for the most part, it's, it's not, the stuff we do doesn't make too many waves over there, you know? And if there's any potential for it to make waves, yeah, like, we'll, we'll iron that out ahead of time, but it's not a very common thing that, I mean, you can see again, like, you check out our various accounts and you'll be like, yeah, there's nothing that legal would really have any input on going on here, right? Um, and then for speeches where you have to get, I mean, usually it's more our policy teams or our legal teams. When when you're when you have to get them involved, you do and you listen to the best degree you can, and then it's up to the executive to deliver it anyway. So yeah, I think that's it. Thanks so much. Sure. Yeah, that's great. That was a very interesting uh, perspective. I've, I've been looking at your Twitter accounts as we've spoken. <laughs> It is quite stimulating. Uh, next person, star six to, yes. Yes, Tamara here. Hi, Matt. This is Tamara Gervis. Uh, I work in, uh, as a video producer and director, and I was just curious, 
Um, but I am also a writer, script writer. So um, I was curious, uh, is there any role that you play with blogging or blog posts? And since it is a, Google is a, com a company that is more conversational and into casual interviews, I was curious whether you have your hand in that domain at all. In vlogging specifically, like as a yeah, well, as I mean, a obviously those yeah, as a, well, as for your employee communications and so forth. I mean, obviously, it's you know uh, a lot of young people at Google who appreciate those types of uh, you know video productions and immediacy of uh, seemingly immediate types of uh, visuals. And was curious whether you also write for you know scripting for. Um, blogging and other video productions oversee any part of that? I, so, I mean, there's a, there's, it's a good question. The, I, I do, one thing, so our internal team, you're, right, you're writing employee communications, and like our internal team has a full-time videographer who does a lot of work. And they're, it's like for, for our various kind of internal channels, and it's, it's cool and it's funny and people respond to it really well. Our marketing teams do a lot of videos, and um, there's some other things you can find online pretty easily, and it's just like storytelling through video about Google and Google products, and, and I mean, some of them are full-blown advertisements, but they're also just kind of like softer, this is Google videos. Um, they're produced by marketing. I'm oftentimes involved in some scripting. I'm not always involved. It depends on who's making the video and what it's about. So yeah, I get involved in a little bit about that, a little bit of that stuff. We also want to use, I mean, right now our blog platform is pretty static and there isn't a lot of room for video, but we're, we're as I said, we're revamping that and we're starting to do more. We're, we're trying to use, we're developing a more dynamic platform to share news, and so that will include a lot more opportunity to use video as part of the way we tell stories about what we do. There's also, like, the small thing that we, I mean, we own YouTube, so video is, like, very important to us generally, and we should, we should, we're, we're constantly always trying to, like, Eric puts everything he does on video, on YouTube, as long as, you know, like, he event would let him do it. And so I am, in a way, even when I'm not writing for video, I'm always, in that regard, writing for video, you know? Sure. Great. Thanks so much, Matt. You got it. Hey, actually, Matt, if I can, I'll, I'll ask one question, giving people a few minutes to gather their thoughts. It did occur to me, um, you know, I grew up in Europe and have been in the U.S. for 40 years, but I know my wife's from Ireland. I know you've got a huge uh, presence of uh, Google employees in Ireland. I believe in Dublin, and I'm sure in other countries outside the U.S. To what extent are you um, t tasked or chartered to have the voice of the non-U.S. centric worldview in the communications? Is that, do you have people overseas who you contribute or do you have to put yourself in the mindset of a European or a, somebody from Asia or Latin America in the communications? Uh, I mean, that's a really good question and it's something I honestly struggle with in a way. Um, I mean, for, I, I, when, when I'm, for the speech writing stuff, when our execs are overseas, I lean pretty heavily on our PR teams on the ground there to help me like kind of shape the messaging and make sure we're, we're going in the right direction and we're not saying anything totally offensive. Um, our platforms, particularly our, our blog and the other things I kind of edit and write for, like they are majority U.S. the readership, so we still do skew U.S. 
Um, I mean, we still we're, we're like we're pretty U.S. centric in, in our messaging there because the, that's where the audience is. But we 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 are constantly getting hit for not being global enough in our thinking, and we we really want to do that. And actually, I just got back. I spent all week last week in London, and I spoke a couple times at an, at an offsite that the our entire European comms and policy team held in London. And so I I talked to both of those teams separately as well as a couple subsets of those teams about um, how they can kind of tap into my team as a resource, how I can work with them and how we view their communications. And it, it was like a Google's it's huge, right? Like I said, they're like 60,000 people, so you can't get your arms around everything that's going on. There's something like 650 social channels and 250 blogs. I mean, it's just like crazy, the communications, and some of them aren't in English, and they're in countries where English isn't spoken, and I don't really speak other languages, so there's very little I can help with there. Um, but I did, like, it was pretty eye-opening to sit with these European teams who do represent a bunch of different countries and like they all have different needs and different ways of thinking about this stuff and Instagram works great in Sweden but it doesn't really matter in France right or like whatever it was and it's, it's, it's kind of learning all that stuff's really interesting I'm doing the same thing in Latin America for our Latin American teams in, in Mexico City in April I think and it's just these things like I come back with my eyes completely open to what like how important it is for us to keep that kind of global lens on things as best as we can and still try to connect to our audience, which is largely in our backyard. So yeah. it's tough, but it's something I'm working on. Well, it's fascinating because actually I'm multitasking here. I was looking at your uh, Twitter and who you follow on Twitter. You've got 14 million followers. You follow just a couple of hundred key uh, other tweet streams, and so many of them seem to be. I came across one. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I want to put you on the spot, but it's fascinating for me to look at at Google Google Trends, and there's a whole series of tweets about um, like the search interest in different Republican candidates in different. There's a there's an election coming up in Ireland, and there's a a, a little pie chart of search interest in the Irish party political parties, and I think Google having that huge rich Stream. I mean, there's, you, you guys are the biggest of the big data um, generators. Uh, obviously, there's a ton of fascinating non-U.S. stuff going on in the world that Google's front and center on. So uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 you're, I mean that's absolutely right. And the trend, I mean, the trend stuff is it's it's good, easy content. Like people love that stuff. And, and there's a whole team, a, a, a trend team that kind of there are data scientists and data journalists who sift through all of that stuff and come up with kind of the stories we want to tell about what people are actually searching for. Yeah. I mean, again, that's the, I mean, that's the benefit of this company, right? It's like you've got billions of people kind of feeding you content every second of every day, right? So, yeah. Um, it's, it makes, I guess, our jobs a little bit easier. I mean, yeah. it's a lot, but it's, it, it helps. It, there's always a story to tell with, with the trends, at least. Absolutely. Well, any, any more? We've got to... We can go another 15 minutes. Uh, of course, if everybody's asked every question they've got, we'll, we'll wrap it up. But star six, if you have any uh, er areas you'd like to discuss with Matt. Hey, Matt, uh, Pete, one more quick question. What do you wish people had told you um, when you were heading out to California from your life in politics in D.C.? What are maybe the three things uh, that, you were, that you learned the hard way? Um, number one, that no matter how expensive people say real estate is out here, they have no idea how expensive real estate is out here. 
Um, and that's, <laughs> so that's, that is, I mean, I say that jokingly, but that's like, I mean, this is on my non-work to-do list. It's like the number, it's the number one issue that my wife and I deal with, right? Um, and I think another thing is, at least particularly with, with Google, and this is what I tell people who are coming to work here or who are considering coming to work here, is that it is really, really, really big. It is a big company, and it does a good job of kind of not seeming that way when you think about it, but um, once you get here, it is it is a pretty crazy, like there are a lot of people doing a lot of things, and if you're in a job like mine where you're, you have to, in some ways, you have a perch where you can kind of see everything, and that is like a really daunting thing, right? So the idea that you can see everything and you have to, get your arms around everything is like once you have to like convince yourself you're never going to get your arms around everything. So don't, don't even try. And one good example. So this is something funny we did on social. I think, it, I think it's like instructive in a way is for you guys probably remember when back to the future day happened last year at the end of last year. It was like the, the day in October in 2015 when Marty McFly and back to the future two went to the future. And there was all this stuff. It, it was, it was a, a phenomenon that largely lived on social media, and we did this clever thing where a woman on my team had written these fake plans for a time machine, and they were like really detailed and really crazy. And you guys can you guys can go go back and find them, and the press actually kind of covered it. And what we did is we we, we tweeted some kind of anodyne. We were like, this is like a new feature on Docs or something like that. It's totally anodyne, and like sent a link, and the link was to these plans for this crazy time machine. And so it was like, it was kind of a purposeful fake leak in a way. And so it took a while for people to realize, A, that it was intentional, and B, it was tied to Back to the Future Day and all of that. And it was like a prank, and it was funny, and it was like pretty cool. Now, the one thing at the very last minute that we hadn't, or it wasn't even the last minute, but slightly before this, like we had to actually go and make sure that we weren't building a time machine. <laughs> and And like, it's, it, it, and this is, it was like real, right? And then there were people you think would know if we were building a time machine, but even they were like, wait a minute, I'm pretty sure we're not building a time machine, but I mean, like, let's check here and here. So we're not building a time machine as of October of last year, but it, it, it definitely showed me again, like there's just so much going on and you never know and you never can know. And like the more you can just let that go, the more at peace you'll be with everything you can get your arms around. That's a great. Does that help? I mean, I mean that's that's it's pretty Google specific, except for the real estate. But um, I'd say it's probably at, at a lot of tech companies where there's a lot of big thinking going on, and a lot of big companies. I think those are important notes. Well, there's probably a skunk works in Google somewhere that is building a time machine. It just hasn't reached you yet. Yeah, exactly. No, it is. I'm sure it is. And it hasn't reached, like, some other people. And, I mean, we didn't hear from them once we leaked it, so at least that's a good sign. But, um, yeah, it was pretty pretty funny. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, okay. Matt. Uh, thanks, uh, Pete. I'm trying to think of some witty rejoinder here that actually we are in the past already and everything you've just spoken about <laughs> never happened because it was all wiped out by Google's time machine. Uh, Okay, we we could go another ten minutes. If any any more questions, any more comments, star six. Hi, this is Sherry Saginor. Hey, Sherry, why don't you give us a bit of background and then go ahead to. I'm a freelance 
speechwriter based in Boston. And I've written primarily for nonprofits, but I'm planning to make the leap to corporate, to broaden to corporate as well. So would you please speak a bit about the differences between writing for nonprofits and corporations versus corporations, specifically with regard to the types of speeches that you write, so that if I, when I target a corporate executive, I'll know what speakers, directors of uh, communication and corporate execs find most valuable and would want to even offload to a uh, freelancer. Thanks. So, I mean, I think what you, this, this all goes back to like my um, emphasis on humanization and storytelling, where I think you probably, having dealt with nonprofits, I don't know which nonprofits you, you've been working with, but for the most part, they have very good human stories to tell, right? Like they, they have to tell them or they're not funded. And um, so like, and, and it just, most nonprofits are doing really good work and doing impressive work and actually changing people's lives. And you can kind of see that, or you can at least make the leap pretty quickly from what they're engaged in to how someone's life is improving. And that story is, is easy to tell and powerful. It's much harder for a corporation to do that. And I think what, I mean, it, again, it depends on the corporation, but by and large, it is harder to tell that human story. And so I think if you're selling yourself to a corporate head, like everyone wants to be better at that. Nobody wants to seem like a nameless, faceless, inhuman corporation. I don't think they do. Then the more you can sell yourself as having all of this experience telling good stories and telling human stories and telling them with kind of emotion and the inherent power of humanity and bringing that to a corporate world, I think that's that's a pretty valuable thing for them, right? Like you, you know where to seek the stories. You know how to tell them, and I think that's probably that's probably number one for me. Great, thank help? you. It does, does help? Help? yes, it absolutely does. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sherry. We've got time for a couple of more people, if you'd like to jump in. Star six. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, this is Jules Damji. I'm an aspiring speechwriter and currently work for a high-tech company that deals with a lot of developer advocacy communication. And I just wanted to ask you about sort of more a technical or tactical aspects of speechwriting. Do you think the structure of the political speeches that you actually wrote while you were in actually DC somehow map one-to-one to say a technical speech given by uh, uh, the current CEO or the current CTO? Do you see the, the structure and the rhetorical devices and the language that you actually use for persuasive speeches? Can they be mapped to, say, uh, a corporate speech or a speech given by a CTO? Thanks. Sure. Um, I would say, by and large, not to try. I mean, they might be able to be mapped, but even within politics, like the more, the more I, I am, people always like they ask me like, what is the like, what is the first thing you do when you write a speech? What is like, what is the process? Like, how does this work? Like, it is different for everything. Even when you're working for one politician within the same industry, or you know, like the same or one CEO of one company, like the everything is and should be structurally different in a way, or or it can be. I mean, if, if the more you start to like figure that you have this successful cookie cutter and you want to apply it to different things, I think the more you lose along the way in the different ways that 
you are able to communicate in the different forums you're able to communicate in. I mean, there are certain rhetorical devices, again, like I mean, storytelling, as I keep stressing, is, is number one. Um, a mix of data and anecdote, like you want all of that stuff. You want humor where it makes sense. Um, there, I have like a habit of starting with a story at the beginning and then coming back to the story at the end. That is like a specific thing that seems to work wherever I am. But for the most part, if you're saying like this structure works in politics, uh, is it going to work in tech? It, it probably isn't even going to work in most of the other politics you're doing. So it's probably not going to work in tech either. Um, so I would just constantly kind of be refreshing that or rethinking that. The, the, the little tricks that you have that you found successful, though, I, I mean, they're pretty universal, right? It's like people hear stories the same way wherever they are, whoever they are. They they like to laugh. They You know, those, those are the kind of, like, human audience moments. But for the most part, it's like structuring the message of the speech. I wouldn't try to just fit one thing on top of a bunch of different things. Okay. Thanks, Jules. Well, I think we've got time for one more. If anybody would like to jump in with a comment to question, star six. Hi, this is Linda. Hi, Linda. Where, where are you and what do you do? Uh, I am actually down the street from you in Santa Clara, and I am a, a recruiter. And I had recently joined this um, meetup group because I, I see the value in speech writing. I, I you know, listen to a lot of uh, corporate reports and things like that, and I, I see the impact when when a CEO or when when someone in finance is is working with a well crafted message. That even if they're delivering the same content but tripping over themselves, or they've got the issues with uh, you know the, the speech issues, the you know, the likes and the ums how that affects the impact on the audience. And so when I'm working with people on a more one-on-one -on -one basis, when I'm working with candidates who are dealing with recruiters or dealing with hiring managers or the reverse, uh, everyone who's crafting that message of here's who I am, here's what I have to offer, um, being able to, to help them to develop that in a, a more impactful way is, is how I'm trying to implement your message. And so what I'm wondering is, is that when you're, when you're dealing with this, do you apply these same issues if you're having to craft a message for yourself that you're giving? Um, you know, do, do, can, can you see, Matt, can you see yourself as your own client at times and write a speech for yourself? Um, that's a really good question. <laughs> so, um, I and I have found myself speaking more and more lately than I ever have. Uh, and it's been it, part of it was a conscious decision. It was like a area of my own development that I wanted to work on. There is a speech coach that we use at Google um, who has actually helped me kind of shape things that way. I, so the work that I do, and it's a, I mean, it's a little weird over the phone, but like when I was in London talking last week, so I mean, these were groups of two separate groups of about 150 people. Um, like I, I the, 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 my, the majority of my energy poured into my own speech giving is on the kind of presentation side and less on the writing side. 
like I don't write that much for myself, you know, like I, I don't, so I don't treat, I'm, what I do is I coach myself in how I'm going to present it and what I'm going to, like how I'm going to sound on stage and how I'm going to walk and where I'm going to be and less so on like writing the notes of what I'm actually going to say because I'm just like, I, I, in, I'm, I mean, it, I'm probably not right, but I, I like in my head, I think I, I can do that stuff and I know that stuff and it's like a nature to me, whereas the actual presentation skills are more difficult for me. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, but it's something, like, it's, a, it's obviously tricky, right? Like, I mean, I delivered, I delivered my grandmother's eulogy, and, like, I, I, I didn't write much down at all, right? Whereas, like, if the vice president was delivering a eulogy, I would have written 2,000 words for him to deliver about this person that I've actually never met, as opposed to my grandmother, who I had. And so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I don't view myself as a speech writing client as much as lately I've been doing myself as a speech someone who needs some speech coaching and whatever experience I have there kind of applying it to myself. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And and the thing is is I, I have had to uh, come up with impromptu messages and think on my feet quite a bit. Um, but as I'm as I'm trying to coach other people, coach I've had candidates that I've, I've worked with that are fantastic at what they do, but they can't tell anyone what they do. And if you can't tell someone what, you, what, what you're doing, how can you possibly influence them to hire you? And so um, I, I see the impact that great, I mean, great speeches have moved, you know, entire nations. And, you know, it just depends upon what is the message you know, what is the intent that you'd like for your message to have? And I've, I've, I've taken improv classes. I've done stand-up comedy. I've done, you know, so being able to think on your feet and to be able to modify your message um, to your audience um, in each different situation, is, it's, a, it's a rare skill. And so trying to help people with that is something that I'm trying to do. And, and, and I have a tremendous admiration for people who can actually speak in the voice of others to be able to get their message across. And so I think it's really interesting that you're, that, you know, that you're, have, have you, have you done an impromptu speech where you haven't developed a message where you felt like it fell flat or like, wow, I wish I'd given that a little bit more thought. Yeah. I mean, well, you go through, so when I've spoken lately, um, and I mean, part of it also is like, I'm a pretty casual guy, right? Like, I'm just like, for me to get up and deliver something that seems scripted or formal, like, it just wouldn't, it really, I'm falling into the same trap that a lot of these, these Silicon Valley execs fall into, but like, it just didn't, it wouldn't seem like me necessarily, and I think people, especially people who have met me, like, they know that, and so it leads me to be casual, and then sometimes I'm too casual, and I, but like, that also leads to, I, I'm big on audio, like, this, this part of this conversation is great, where you guys are asking me questions, and I, it's not like I prepared anything. And so I like audience interaction, and when I'm on a stage in front of an audience and they're asking me questions, like I really feel like I'm like that's where I'm at my most comfortable. But then I also finish, and I'm like, wait, you think about it, like this person asked these questions, and I really wish I would have answered that completely differently, or I really wish I would have used this example instead of that example. And if I like wrote stuff down maybe a little bit more, I don't know. So it's a constant struggle on like getting that stuff getting that stuff right. Like, I, I want to be I want to be as conversational and direct as possible and informal as possible, but I want to make sure that, like, I'm, the conversation is as rich as it can be. And that probably... So part of that is me just... My presentation itself, and part of it is probably me developing a, more thinking around 
the substance of, of what I'm saying along the way. I don't know. It's tough. I also, like, I lead a team, right? So we have a weekly team meeting, and, like, I have to keep that, – that's, like, an interesting part of my – that's presenting in a way, right? And it is – it's a tough – it's people who know me really well, and you've got to keep them engaged and interested and inspired to keep doing work. And it's, like, a really – it's something I've worked on with this speech coach. So it's not just when you're – in front of an audience of 150 people. It's also like when I'm in a room with 10 people who are looking to me to be their leader, like it's kind of a really important skill that I'm, it's basically like what, what I'm working on most out of any kind of personal development for the next foreseeable future, basically. Oh. Well, Hi. thanks a lot, Linda, for that question. And uh, I'm conscious of the time. And uh, Matt, I'm sure you've got uh, things to do at Google this afternoon. So um, by the way, as regard that last discussion i i always put it in pitch uh, humble as it is for people on the call if you're writers but you've never spoken you feel like matt you need to get uh more familiar check out your local toastmasters i'm sure there's clubs everywhere and anywhere that you live and i've found it in the past to be a good experience so matt any last thoughts i want to thank you very much for uh, the time you spent with us today this has been tremendous no, this has been great. And I mean, if any of you are in the Bay Area, and just like shoot me a note if you want to get some coffee and talk shop a little bit more. Like I'm, I'm around when I'm around, okay. and I'm, I'm always happy to do it. So anything, and, and whatever, if you guys have tips from me in any way, things you've learned along the way that you think would be valuable for the stuff I do, I, the conversation yeah. is two ways. So I appreciate yeah. the time. Though. All right. Well, that's great. And uh, thanks, everybody, for dialing in today. And uh, look out for if anybody's got any suggestions for future guests or if you'd like to be a guest on Silicon Valley Roundtable, uh, Speechwriters Roundtable, just drop me a line. 